There were some difficult names in that reading, so good job, Saju. Let's pray. <clears throat> Our Lord, we are thankful this morning to be here in your presence. Uh, there really is no other place that we would rather be than here because here we can, we can experience you in a unique way in this community uh, to worship you, to be brought to truth. There's something special about this morning, this, these kinds of moments that we have together. And so we pray that we would be present. We pray that you would cause our hearts to be tuned into your word, that our minds would not be distracted of the cares of this world or the worries that are on our hearts or what we will do tomorrow or this week. We pray that our hearts would be tuned in to hear from you. Uh, we need your word. It's, it's our bread for life. It's our water to drink. And so we pray that it would provide sustenance and nourishment for our souls and our hearts this morning. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. When you come to moments in life that require you to say farewell to someone, uh, those kinds of moments can often be profound and cherished moments. When you have to say farewell to someone, those, those are weighty moments that we get. Uh, one late German writer, for instance, wrote that man's feelings are always purest and most glowing in the hour of meeting and in the hour of farewell. Right? We're at our purest, our, our heart's most glowing at the moment we see someone, but also at the moment that we have to say goodbye to someone. Or perhaps more well-known to us, especially in Philly, are the words of some Motown Philly poets when they said, it's so hard to say goodbye to yesterday, right? Goodbyes are hard, farewells are difficult, right? Perhaps you, like me, we had that soundtrack playing in the background during our high school graduation as we hugged people that we grew up with and went to school with. It's hard to say goodbye, farewells are difficult and it makes your heart grow fond. Some of you think back to moments like that. I remember just a, a few years ago, a couple of years ago, sitting in a living room uh, with some of you as we said farewell to a brother who was moving halfway across the world. And we weren't sure when or if we would see him again. Or you think of military men and women who say farewell to their families all the time, hoping that, desperately hoping that they will see them again. Uh, I've also thought especially of instances when an aging father or an aging mother may gather their children around them during the end of their life, perhaps the last hours of their lives. Uh, in those kinds of moments, uh, what are you feeling? Uh, what are you doing? Uh, your ears perk up and you wanna listen to what they have to say in moments like that. When someone says farewell to you, and when you have to say goodbye, unsure of what will happen. Uh, because in those kinds of moments, you're expecting for that person to almost share to you the totality of a person's life, what all of it was meant for, what was, what was the purpose of all of this, what was the purpose of this whole time. You're expecting a lot. You're expecting even how they relate to you, perhaps as a child. What is mom, dad going to tell me? How will they look over the years and encapsulate all that has happened with this moment? What will they say in those moments. Those kinds of moments really matter to us, right? They're weighty, they're profound. And at the end of Acts 20, the passage that Saju read for us this morning, we get a different type of farewell that is filled with emotion, it's filled with depth, as Paul looks back over his years as he spent years with the people of the church of Ephesus. And this morning we get to listen in as Paul captures the totality of his life with these people, the, the totality of what life walking with them has looked like. 
What was it all about? What did it look like? It's the kind of scene that perhaps as you've heard and as we'll consider, it's the type of scene that when you see it, when you hear it, it's the type of scene that you would long for for your own selves, to be that close with people. It captures with words how much this group of people actually mattered to one another. That's what the effect of this farewell speech from Paul has on you. It's the kind of scene that you want, but more profoundly, more particularly here even this morning, I'd say it's the type of relationships and the type of connection and intimacy that you would actually hope for relationships here at Seven Mile Road. What, what Paul had with those in Ephesus, I think is what we actually long for even here. Relationships that are deep and wide and meaningful and authentic. Uh, So this morning, we're going to spend most of our time with Paul's farewell speech when he says farewell to the church in Ephesus. We're going to spend most of our time there today, uh, but I want to give us a brief flyover of the beginning of Acts 20 just to give us some context, and it also helped to serve our purpose today as we consider Paul's farewell speech. So in the beginning of Acts 20, Uh, Paul is leaving, as we heard last year, last week, about the uproar in Ephesus. He's leaving after the uproar, and as he's traveling, Paul is going from region to region, visiting fellow Christians, fellow brothers and sisters that he knows, and the text says in Acts 20 that Paul was encouraging people as he went. He He was giving much encouragement to these people as he was with them, uplifting them, comforting them, and the people who were traveling with them are listed by name. Each one of these people by name, he knew them, where they were from. He knew their stories, and they knew his. These people were tightly knit as Paul is going from region to region, encouraging them, knowing them by name, accompanying them. They were not just mere people who he traveled with. Paul knew them well, and he encouraged these people. So eventually, Paul lands in Troas, and we see this scene, which is at the same time confusing, tragic, and altogether comical. Uh, Because as we read this, there's this series of events that you read and you're wondering, how has this happened? How has this happened so quickly? This this is what happens in Acts 20 as as Paul goes from region to region, ends up in Troas. Hear this with me. Starts at verse seven. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day. And he prolonged his speech until midnight. He prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. I mean, talk about a killer sermon. I mean, this... This literally bored Eutychus to death, this sermon, this this sermon that went until midnight that he prolonged over and over again. And I know that you're tempted to read this as biblical warrant to demand shorter sermons from us. Thankfully, we're not three stories high. We're actually at a basement level. So even if you fell out the window, you'd be perfectly safe. So this doesn't apply to us in this context. All, all, all that said, what I want you to hear from this text as Eutychus falls to his death, I want you to hear actually how Paul responds to this moment. There's, there's probably more to say with that event itself, but look how Paul actually responds to this odd account as this man falls to his death. It says in verse 10, but Paul went down and bent over him 
and taking him in his arms said, do not be alarmed for his life is in him. And then verse 12 says, and they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. We won't even talk about the fact that Eutychus was raised from death, a miraculous raising from death. Uh, but I want you to see Paul was a man that no matter where he was, no matter what status he held, no matter where he was, who he was with, this man was a man who encouraged people, bent down low, and comforted people. Uh, nothing was beneath him. Paul was a man who was with the people, whether it was encouraging Christians in Macedonia after a riot or to bending low to a young boy in Eutychus who just lost his life. Paul, you see, as he traveled with people, as he comforted people, encouraged people, Paul was invested in people. Uh, he wasn't just about the motions. He wasn't just about moving on. He wasn't just about ritual. Paul was actually invested in the people who he was with. And so Paul, eventually he lands in Miletus and he calls forward the Ephesian elders to give his final farewell to them. This farewell speech, it's often used and, and rightly used to preach uh, as a job description for pastors, right? It, it's, it's often said that this is a good account of what pastors should be about in their ministry. And that's right, uh, because there's so much in here to be, be taking from, and it's also actually written directly to pastors. This farewell speech Paul is saying to fellow pastors. But I, I want to say, along with many other pastors and scholars, that the application of this text is much broader than just to pastors, because this text, Paul is describing for us actually what it looks like to be in a local community, a local church together. Paul is describing, even through his farewell speech, what it looks like to live life together as a church. Uh, if Paul were to speak to pastors directly from this text, what he would call us to say would be, don't pastor the church as just a job that you clock in and out of. It's more than that. It's deeper than that. Uh, but broader than that, if he were to say to all of us, not just pastors, if he said to all of Seven Mile Road, all of you sitting here, he would say to us, don't live life with one another as if this is just any other relationship. Don't live life here at a distance from one another. That's what Paul wants us to hear. Don't isolate. Don't live at a distance from one another. And I'd say this text has really been shaping my heart and my soul over these years as we've, as we've lived life with one another. There's a brother of ours up in Boston, Matt Cruz, a pastor at Seven Mile Road, Boston there, and he's helped to really unpack for us over these years some of the treasures that are hidden in Acts 20. And so as we work through this text, here's the question that I want you to be thinking about in the back of your head. Here's the question that I want to be ringing in the back of your head. And that is, what does the gospel lived out together require from us? What does the gospel lived out together require from us here at Seven Mile Road? What will that look like? And while this text is loaded, I mean, you could spend hours and hours and hours preaching from this text. For our, for our time here, I want to point out just three things from this text. In fact, just three words to help give a vision for what we could look like as we live out the gospel together here. Three words. The first of that is, living out the gospel together requires our tears. Living out the gospel together requires our tears. Paul opens this section by saying, uh, in verse 18, 
You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears. Before we even get to that latter section, would you notice how he opens up? He says, you yourselves know how I lived. You yourselves know. Paul is telling them that they know how he lived. He didn't need to say much. They actually knew his life. They didn't need to hear it from someone else secondhand. They have been recipients of how Paul has lived among them as recipients of his life. They are witnesses. Uh, But would you imagine for a second, and I I struggle to imagine for a second, would you imagine that a typical pastor, even an American pastor, could say this, that he could lead with this, to say that, hey, just look at my life. Look at how I live. That's all you need. Uh, Could you imagine? I couldn't. I couldn't imagine me saying to you, hey, that's all the appeal I need. Just look at my life. Uh, We might say instead, you know how I preached and you know how I taught and exposited and spent hours prepping for something? Or where a pastor might say, you know how I have strategized vision for you and seen it through. You've seen how much wisdom I've put in the vision of the church. Or you might say, you know how many degrees I have. You know the education that I have. You know the wisdom that is in here. Or you might say, you know all of the ministries that we started. Look at that. You know that. You Look at that. That's all you need to know. But to lead as Paul does to say, you yourselves know how I lived. Just how I lived. Just look at my life. You know how I lived among you from the first day that I set foot in Asia. You know how I lived. Paul preached. He did. Paul strategized. He was wise. Paul even was well-learned, and yet Paul says here, just look at my life. You know how I lived. Just look at my life. And Paul says after that, you know how I've lived among you, and it's been with humility and with what? Tears. I've lived among you with tears. You've got to feel the weight of those words here. Luke, the the writer of Acts, is not just trying to appeal to your emotions and mine. Luke is trying to give us a sense of the relationship, the depth of relationship that Paul had with his people in Ephesus, with the Christians that they had mutually shared. Luke is trying to give us a feel for that. They saw that his ministry among them was authentic. They saw Paul, they sat beside Paul as he wept with them, shed tears, as he wiped tears off of their face. He saw them weep for them. Paul would go home and soak the ground in tears because he was concerned and he loved these people in Ephesus. He wept for them. He didn't see his life among them as trivial or casual. He was invested in them. He was all in for these people in Ephesus. And friends, this is how God calls us to live out the gospel here, with tears. Uh, But that kind of an emotional investment, if we were to be honest, especially in the context of a church, tell me that isn't really hard to do sometimes. Uh, Because whereas the church should be the place for solace, should be the place where you could shed your tears and cry for others, the church often feels like a place that is susceptible to be hurt. 
and perhaps you have felt hurt in the past. Perhaps you have gone through experiences here or anywhere else where you have felt hurt from people at the church, by experiences at the church. And so to be vulnerable, to make yourself known, to be invested emotionally in other people's lives, man, that's, that could be really difficult for you. And I, I would say I've had experiences that have made this thing difficult to actually do. You can be judged. You can be disappointed. You could be misunderstood. If you confess your sins to someone, if you show your weakness to someone, if you bare your soul and you share your fears with someone, that can feel like a place that you'd rather keep in because you don't want to feel weak or vulnerable or get hurt again. So I get it. And so we have religious talk to sort of curb our enthusiasm to want to be authentic and shed our tears. So we'll use religious jargon like, I'm going to guard my heart. I'm going to guard my heart and protect myself because there's hurt that is coming. If, I, if, I, if people know the real me, if people know how I think, if people know the things I struggle with, I've got to guard my heart because they won't like me. They, they won't want to be a part of my life. I'm going to guard my heart because they don't want to shed tears for me. And I don't want to shed tears for them. So I'm going to guard my heart. So there's, a, there's a weight to the investment that Paul is expressing here. You're giving your life into this thing. I'm not sure of all of your stories of all of your, or all of your heartaches, but I know it's risky. I know it's risky to dive into community like this. And yet, the tenor of the scriptures calls us to throw our hearts into this community, to swim in the deep waters of community at a local church, and specifically, friends, here, bearing your souls with one another, opening your lives, even weeping alongside and for one another. At Seven Mile Road, if you've been here for some time, you know that we do something called church membership. Churches all over the world for decades, centuries have done this thing called church membership. In fact, over these past, just these past few weeks, we've been meeting with you. Uh, many of you sat in on a class a couple of weeks ago for two days, eight hours, as we've talked through theology and practice and life here at Seven Mile Road. Uh, but membership, listen, when you hear church membership, it's not like getting membership at your local Acme for a, a saver's card or a membership at a gym to get fit. It's not like, you know, strolling down the aisle, walking past someone with your grocery card or running along someone on a treadmill. That's not the kind of membership that we talk about. Why do we meet to talk about theology and faith? Why do we meet with you individually to talk through life and how you're doing and what your involvement and what, how you will love your brothers and sisters here would look like. Why do we do those things? Uh, we don't do this because, we don't do this membership thing because we just want to add numbers and build up an empire. That's not the reasons why we do it. No, we're saying that this community is more than a group of people gathered together that happen to come together on a Sunday morning and sing some songs, hear some words, and then just, just leave and go on about their lives. No, Paul God himself is trying to tell to us today, no, this is more than that. This is deeper than that. As a people, as a community, we want to be believing rightly. We want to be living faithfully. We want to be confessing our sins humbly, serving one another and loving one another sacrificially, passionately, rejoicing fully, and even be weeping on the ground with one another because this is a deep and a wide community of believers who trust in Jesus. And that's what a community looks like. Not shallow, not surface, but invested in one another's lives. Can I tell you, 
though we probably have so much room to grow in so many ways, and even here, would you hear this from me that I'm not saying this as you've got to do more. I'm saying, brothers and sisters, I have watched you. We have watched one another as you have weeped with one another together through some really dark days. Listen, I have been so encouraged to know you and to weep alongside you as you've weeped with others and with me, as we try to walk alongside together, as we struggle through faith, as we lose people in our lives, as we find ourselves lost in this world. You have weeped with one another. I have seen even this past week, Asha weep as she considered the gospel and what it means for us to stay on track and to continue on believing it, believing it, living it. I've watched her. We, we sat a few of us in a room as we saw her weep. I've seen someone like Sarah Enslin over and over again weep for people that she loves, pray for them. We get texts from her saying, we've been praying for you, I've been praying for you. We've seen that. I've seen a, a tough, gritty man like Dennis Matthew weep for you in meetings, weep over the vision of the church that people would know Jesus no matter the cost. I've seen you weep. You've seen each other weep. I've seen in my GCM this past year people weeping alongside one another, holding one another through difficulty. There have been tears shed. Seven Mile Road, glory be to God that we are not alone as we shed our tears. This has been a community where we have been able to shed tears even as it makes us vulnerable. The Lord gives us this community as a grace to us. This work, dear brothers, is worth our tears. This community is worth your tears. Second, living out the gospel together requires our hands. It requires our tears. And second, living out the gospel together requires our hands. Uh, a really interesting part of this text is Paul's usage of the word hands. It's an odd word to just pull out of a text, right? How does he use this word hands? He says in verse 34, you yourselves know that these hands, they ministered to you, they served you, they sought after your needs, these hands, you know these hands. Matt Cruz, our brother up in Boston, has pointed this out, that Paul's life among these people was so intimate so near, so close, that they didn't just know his theology or his cadence or his face, but they knew his hands. They were that close. He says that you can know someone's reputation from what others say about them. You can learn about their gait by observing them across the room. You can pin down their personality from listening to enough podcasts, but knowing their hands, that can only happen if you are really close really often. Listen, these people are so a part of one another's lives and in each other's homes that they could pick out each other's hands from a lineup of a thousand hands because they've seen them over and over again. They could see the nicks and bruises on Paul's hands as he sews tents together. They could feel the calluses on their neck as he embraces them with a hug. They could feel his grip as he pulls them up after praying on the ground over a need that has come up. They can feel, they can sense, they can know his hands because they've seen his hands, they've experienced it. Yes, we shed tears for one another, but we also live life with one another in close and frequent ways. Listen, Seven Mile Road, we can't know one another at a distance. You can't. Uh, you can't come in on a weekly basis and know someone at a distance, at arm's length. 
This knowing that Paul is talking about, the knowing of hands, this is the knowing that shows up to help you move out of your home when you need some help. This is the kind of knowing that drives you to the airport for a red-eye flight. I think of someone like our dear Charles, whose hands many of you know. Many of you know Charles's hands. Uh, this is the kind of knowing that Laura has given her life to for the past 10 years. You know these even shaking hands bringing up communion to be served to us. You know those hands. Uh, this is the kind of knowing that lasts late into the night with bellies filled with food and laughter because you enjoy one another and you love one another. This is the kind of knowing where you enjoy one another and you slap each other's hands over a Sunday night football game because you just love being together. That's the kind of knowing we're talking about. These are the kinds of hands that you've known holding hands in prayer, through pain, through loss, through grief. These are the hands that you've seen this morning raised in worship, even through trial and through struggle. These are the hands that you've seen in your GCM raised up. You know these hands. You know one another's hands. And if you know one another well, you yourselves would know the hands of one another, your brother and sister. This community at Ephesus uh, were more than associates. They were friends. And listen, friendship in the Christian world, doesn't mean you just become friends with the people who look like you, think like you, have been raised in the same culture as you or country as you. Friendship looks very different. C.S. Lewis in his book, The Four Loves, says this about this kind of friendship. He says that if you were to depict romantic love, you'd imagine that husband and wife are facing one another, right? If you were to depict it, you'd imagine they are facing one another. It's a unique love. It's an intimate love. A love like no other, they face one another in that kind of a relationship. Uh, but C.S. Lewis goes on to say, if you were to depict friendship, it wouldn't be face to face, but it would actually be shoulder to shoulder, hand in hand, as they actually face, not themselves, but someone else or something else. Friendship is not where you look face to face, but you're actually shoulder to shoulder, arms locked. They're facing something else that attracts them and draws them to appreciation and agreement and wonder on what they gaze their eyes upon, right? You look towards someone else, shoulder to shoulder as friends. But for the Christian, what are you looking at? What are we gazing our eyes upon? We're not gazing our eyes upon a hobby or a culture. We're not gazing our eyes upon something that just tickles our fancy. We are gazing upon Jesus Christ. He is the one who, who we are attracted to. He is the one who, who entices us. He is the one who we love and are in awe of. And this kind of friendship, we, we lock our eyes shoulder to shoulder looking at Jesus Christ. And this kind of friendship is unique more than any other friendship in the world. This is what Tim Keller says about this kind of friendship. Do you know that Christianity is the most culturally and racially diverse group in the world? All other major religions, most of their, their adherents, 80% or more are living on one or two continents at most, at best. But the Christian religion, those who follow Christ, listen, the work that Christ has done, it's all over the world. It's every continent, every, every part of the world. Jesus Christ is known and there are followers all over the world. And why has this happened? How has this happened? It's because of Ephesians 2. Jesus Christ has actually come into the world, not to just make us friends around things that we relate on. But Jesus has divided the wall of hostility that divides Jew and Greek racially, socially, socioeconomically, ethnically, so that Jew and Greek can sit alongside one another, have nothing in common except Jesus Christ, and say we are friends. 
And we are brothers and sisters, more than friends. And that's the work that God does with us. That we can, even though we may have no experiences similar, except that Christ saw us and pursued us and saved us, and we can rally around that and enjoy life with one another, even through struggle. And so know one another deeply. Fight the urge to isolate and to, and to curl in and to just come here on a Sunday morning and not dive in deeply because there's a lot of beauty in knowing one another this way. Okay, lastly, living out together in gospel community means shedding our tears, people knowing our hands, and then thirdly, it means and requires our lives. Right? Living out together in the gospel requires our lives. As you read this farewell speech that Paul is giving, we have sensed, we've felt his love for his dear brothers and sisters. You've sensed that they've spent years together, shed tears together, have known one another as deeply as you could possibly know. It's the kind of friendship that we said you would long for and you want. Aren't these the kinds of friendships that you would want here? These relationships mean the world to Paul and to those in Ephesus. And yet we read in the middle of his speech in verse 24, here's what it says. But I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I am, have gone about proclaiming the kingdom, will see my face again. You can feel the bottom sort of fall out as Paul says these words because these beautiful relationships that he has pursued and they have pursued and that they have enjoyed, that have existed for years, will now cease. And you've got to think, this is thousands of years ago. There was no FaceTime. There was no text message that you can send. This was it. These people that they walked alongside, shed tears with, people who knew one another so closely, this was it. And Paul was saying farewell, because remember, this is his farewell address. And as you read this, you have a sense that Paul, he loves these people with all of his heart. He loves them, and yet he has love for God and an unwavering commitment to the gospel that he has been entrusted with that even these relationships that matter so much to him, that mean more than anything, he's saying, I'm gonna open my hands and hold even these things lightly because the glory of God and his mission and the gospel that he has entrusted with me matter more. To the point that I can say farewell, dear friends. Farewell, brothers and sisters, because what's his aim? He says, it's to finish the course testifying of the gospel. How is he able to do this? Because he does not count his life of any value to himself or precious to himself. He has an understanding and awareness of his life. Yes, there's value because Jesus Christ has come into this world, but there is another life coming on this world. I'm not wasting my life. I'm going all in. I'm, I'm fighting hard for the gospel. I don't count my life as valuable because there's something more valuable. That is Jesus Christ, his glory and his gospel. Seven Mile Road, living out the gospel together even requires saying farewell for the sake of Jesus and his gospel. And that's a really difficult thing to digest, right? We've been here experiencing 
10 years of really good community by God's grace. The Lord has unified us. He has allowed us to see people get baptized and saved. He's linked us together in community in ways that we really know one another. The Lord has been really kind, really gracious in these 10 years. And yet, I pray a difficult prayer, and I pray that you would pray along with us that there will come a day when some of us may say farewell for the sake of the gospel, because God is calling us to go somewhere to some people to preach this gospel and to proclaim his gospel to someone. Because, would you know, we started 10 years ago saying we want to be a church that plants churches, that plants churches, that plants churches. And we said that because there are people in our region, people in our country, people all over the world that have yet to know this Jesus who will die not knowing this Jesus, not experience this level of community, experience lostness and be forever lost because they have not known Jesus. Listen, we don't know all that God has for us in these next 10 years of ministry, and yet we are praying that God would raise up some people for this kind of work. Not just pastors, not just people on a stage, but you, people like you, People like Justin and Rena who are with us and seeking to plant a church. People like Sujith and Cheryl who we're partnering alongside to send them to India to plant a church. Uh, we are seeking people that they would sense a call to ministry, sense a call through their vocation to go and be a part of something that proclaims the gospel. And listen, people and places and churches we may not know where or how or when, but for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ, isn't it worth it? Would we be so siloed that we spend a 50 more years here proclaiming the gospel to one another and at the end it just, it just finishes? Would we want not the gospel to reach to the ends of the earth through the work here at Seven Mile Road, even as it means farewell and goodbye? The gospel Seven Mile Road compels us to love each other well, but it also compels us when God calls us to send each other well, even with tears, because that's actually how the church in Ephesus sent Paul, with tears. That's what it says at the end in verse 36. Luke writes that, and when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word that he had spoken, that they would not see his face again, and they accompanied him to the ship. Paul counted nothing of value except Jesus and his gospel, not even his own life, not even of ultimate value the people that he loved. One pastor that you may have heard, John Piper has said this, it's better to lose your life than to waste it. And that's from scripture, right? What, what, what use is it to, to gain the whole world and yet lose your soul? Perhaps you have heard more recently in October a controversial story of a man who went to a tribal region in India as a missionary. Discussion and debate are happening all over about how he went and why he went and should he have went. This man from Washington State, a young man with his life ahead of him, traveled to India and had a plan to reach the people there, learn the language. And within a month's time, 
the tribal people of that region killed him to death in under a month. And what happened was there became news articles and commentary all over the world about how foolish this man was. The Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, writing, this man's a maniac. This man is unwise. He's a fool. Why would we ever celebrate him? And I'm not... Listen, I know there's probably conversation to have about, was it wise that he went? Could he have taken more care? That's not my point here. My point is this, as I even read this week and was encouraged. The gospel, what we believe, and what the world believes is totally different. There are causes, there are risks, there are decisions that you and I will make and should make because we believe that Christ Jesus has come into a world of broken sinners to save them. That means you risk everything. That means you will give up everything, even at great cost to your life. I mean, if there isn't anything more different about how the world thinks and how Christians should think, it would be how you account for your life because we don't believe that life ends here. There is another shore on which we will see Jesus Christ. So whatever may come, whatever the risk, it's worth it because Jesus is worth it and people are worth it. The glory of God is worth it. Friends, a life that counts Jesus as the highest treasure, Jesus as the greatest pursuit, Jesus as the one whom people desire most, even if they don't know it, people who need him, isn't everything worth giving up for the sake of Christ? Because Paul, he even writes, I didn't know what was coming. He writes in verses 22 and 23, I don't know what's ahead, I don't know what's coming, except in verse 23 he says, I do know actually that imprisonment awaits me, affliction awaits me, Maybe he didn't know the full extent, but eventually death would await him. And so call him crazy. But this man loved Jesus and his gospel and loved the world enough to take a risk and live it out for the sake of Jesus. So as we close, I want to ask us, what are we taking from here? In fact, where are we going for motivation for some of this? How do we be inspired to, to give our life, to live out in gospel community with our tears, with our hands, and with our lives? Do we look to Paul? Because Paul is a great man. He's done this. And yet Paul is not the man we look to. He's simply walking in the footsteps of a much greater man, Jesus Christ. Because what has Jesus Christ actually accomplished? Is Jesus Christ not the one who was warmed and moved by the centurion's faith? Did Jesus not weep over the city of God with his tears. When his own friend Lazarus passed away, is it not Jesus who wept for him? What about the hands of Jesus? The hands that embrace the shamed and the sinner, those who are lost and wayward, when no one else would. Was it not Jesus who embraced the leper and touched the eyes of the blind? Were his hands not the ones that were pierced for our redemption? The hands that the doubtful Thomas would one day see and touch pierced hands after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Are these hands of Jesus not the hands that we will one day see on the other side? And what about the life of Jesus? Is there anyone, has there ever been, there will never be anyone who has given more of his life than Jesus Christ? The very God of the universe have come, has come into the world, emptied himself, though he was like God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He gave his life over for us to the point of death on a cross. So Seven Mile Road, go there to be moved to live like this with one another. 
in this world. Go to the cross. Go to Jesus Christ who shed tears, whose hands you know, who gave his life for you and me. Go there. And as you consider that, as we pray, I want you to ask yourself the question and ask the Holy Spirit to even open up your heart to know. Would anyone, do people, know your tears? Have they seen your tears? Do they know your hands? Do they know Jesus by your life? And as you ask that, would you ask the Holy Spirit to encourage you, to convict you, to instruct you, and to give you strength to move forward and to live in the footsteps of Jesus? Let's pray. Our God, we pray that you would give us, in this moment, a heart that is soft and tender to the gospel, that you would even make us recount the great marvel of what you have done for us, the great tragedy from which you have rescued us from, namely our our death and, and hell. Would you cause those things which you have accomplished for us, would you move us towards one another in real, deep, authentic community that weeps with one another, loves one another, whose hands we know, and even as much beauty as there is there, that we would even have the grace to be able to send one another and to leave and say farewell, and to give our lives over to this thing. We want to live for you here and now. We want to live for you 10 years from now, 100 years from now, and we will be living for you a million years from now. We pray that you would give us the grace in these moments, in this hour, today, mercy, to believe that you will enable us to do that. It's in Christ's name that we pray, amen.